You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. It was 1964, Palm Sunday, the day when churches recite passages like the one we just read from Mark 11, remembering Jesus' ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Two college students that morning, Joe Purdy, a black student at Memphis State University, and Jim Bullock, a white student at Southwestern College, went up to Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis to participate in the morning service. As they approached the church's front doors, Purdy was asked by one individual, are you African? He answered, no, I'm an American, but I'm black. The two students were told that they couldn't enter the sanctuary, keeping with the church's policy of maintaining racially segregated worship. It was an outcome the two young men expected. The way into the church was blocked by men in suits, so Joe and Jim simply knelt on the pavement to pray. They returned a week later on Easter Sunday, this time with a few more friends, and they were met with the same response from the church. The black students could not enter. Their white classmates stood with them, or rather knelt with them in solidarity. Together that day, that Easter morning, they knelt for prayer for one hour in the middle of a rainstorm, while inside the church building, the worshipers, the white worshipers, with unintended irony, took a special offering for, quote, victims of disaster, destitution, and hunger. For the next several Sunday mornings, this weekly drama was repeated, just as it was at hundreds of churches in the early 1960s, in what became known as church kneel-ins. Each Sunday morning, between 5 and 40, well-dressed students knelt in prayer in front of Second Presbyterian Church, while the church's elders and deacons guarded the church's entrance, standing shoulder to shoulder on the church's steps, flanked by armed police officers with their guns and nightsticks visibly displayed. We weren't there to hack our way in, one of the students recalled years later. The force we were using was love. The churches should have been the last places on earth to be segregated. When Jesus entered the temple in Jerusalem, he too was deeply disturbed by the corruption of the worship of God. He too found it unconscionable that some of his people would be excluded from the assembly of the saints on the basis of their ethnicity. He too saw fit to protest this unrighteousness, to symbolically demonstrate the need for cleansing and change. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, he rode in on a donkey, surrounded by the praises of the people. The donkey, as is well noted, symbolized his humility. Jesus would be a different kind of king, But more importantly, that donkey symbolized 
his royal legitimacy. Who was it that rode in on donkeys in those days? Only kings. See, donkeys were slow, plodding, regal, stately, you know, kind of like a limousine. And so by the time Jesus arrives at the temple, Mark ensures that his readers know for sure that Jesus has arrived girded with authority. He's not only the true king, he's also the true priest. The priest who has returned to his father's house. And what does he find there in God's house? An absolute mess. The temple grounds were massive, about the size of two or three football fields, for those of you who watched the Super Bowl last week. And he sees before him what doesn't look like worshipers, but rather merchants. A place that seems to have been converted into a marketplace. Jesus begins to drive them out. He overturns chairs and tables, just spilling piles of silver and bronze coins all across the pavement. You could almost hear the, the crashing noises of the tumult and chaos. He tosses seats used by those who sold animals to be sacrificed in the temple. And then he wouldn't allow anyone carrying anything through that courtyard. Maybe for an hour, everything in the temple came to a complete halt. And in the words of commentator Sinclair Ferguson, Jesus' holy wrath burned with frightening purity. What was going on? What was it that stirred up the righteous indignation of Jesus' heart so much? What is the meaning of this intentional chaos stirred up at the hands of Jesus? Well, before saying more about the cleansing of the temple, I want to tell you a little bit more about the gift of the temple because we can't really understand the meaning of this cleansing until we see the temple as a gift. And that is what it was. The temple was a precious gift to God's people. It represented God's creative commitment to dwell in the midst of his people, who, of course, were a sinful people. A God like this God had no reason, no business dwelling in their midst. But here he was creating a physical structure, some way for God to dwell nearby, indeed as neighbors, to his people. Here was a God of the universe who wouldn't live far off, but here he was, a God with an address, a God with a door that you could knock on, literally God with a porch. It all started off with the tabernacle, which was a portable tent, an earlier version of the temple, sort of like an RV. God moving around as his people moved through the wilderness. Eventually, it was Solomon who would build a more permanent structure, God's permanent home amongst his people. And you ask, well, what was the big deal? What did the temple, the tabernacle, represent? Well, a few things. Three things in particular we'll highlight here. First, it represented intimacy. 
See, the temple was the place where your sins could be forgiven. Atonement was made possible at the doorway of the temple. Here it was that God would offer the forgiveness of all of your sins. And where through atonement, you wouldn't just get a get-out-of-jail-card-free card, you would actually be reunited with your Creator. The temple was a place of reunion celebration. That's why here even Jesus, in quoting the prophets, calls the temple a house of prayer. Now, prayer is something that sometimes we think of as simply talking words that are exchanged, and it is that as we lift up our words to God. But even more basic than the exchange of words is the exchange of hearts. Prayer represents communion with God. It's not just talking with God, it is being with God. This ongoing pandemic and all the struggles that it has presented to us reminds us that relationship is more than the exchange of words. It's not less than words. You need communication for authentic relationship, but it's more than words. If words alone were enough to constitute a relationship, an intimate friendship, then we would know that Zoom would be enough, but it's not. What do we need? We need embodied presence. We need to be even physically near to one another. See, the temple was the bodiless God's embodied presence in the midst of his people. The temple represented intimacy. Secondly, it represented beauty. I mean, you should have seen the way the interior of the tabernacle and the temple after it was decorated. Uh, first of all, God called in the very best of the artists and the craftsmen whose gifts and talents had to be empowered by none other than the Holy Spirit himself to do precisely what God intended them to do. Embroidering linen cloths made of blue and purple and scarlet yarn, gold and silver and bronze in, in, inside the, the midst of the various chambers and rooms, tanned ram skins and goat skins and acacia wood, fragrant incense, onyx stones, lampstands made of pure gold and even cups that were designed as almond blossoms, the furniture that was put in place, all of these things that were intended to serve as a visual echo of Eden, which we know as paradise. This was meant to be a little flash, a glimpse of heaven itself, and a glimpse indeed of God, a God who himself is beauty, the source of all beauty. And part of that visible beauty, of course, is a reflection of the beauty of God's grace, the way in which through the forgiveness of sins and the way in which God would bring people into his presence, the beauty of a God who reconciles himself to his sinful people. And the way in which he does that without discrimination, loving people of all variety of backgrounds, the different sacrifices that could be made from both in the hands of both rich and poor, demonstrating that it didn't matter your financial means, God would accept you all. 
And of course, we see pictures of the beauty of God's people, where no one would be excluded. Everyone would be a part of God's radiant family. No matter your background, no matter your vocation, no matter who you were, you stood together on the beauty of God's grace as God's beautiful family. Thirdly, the temple represented not only intimacy and not only beauty, but also possibility. You have to remember this tabernacle temple was given to God's people first in the midst of years of wilderness wanderings, in the middle of a desert. So all this beauty and all this intimacy with the God of the universe was almost an oasis of life in the midst of death and barrenness. Uh, This is a God whose very presence electrifies life, who is life. A wonderful author, uh, Tish Warren Harrison, recently has written, The world crackles with possibility because it is steeped in the shocking and unpredictable presence of God. See, here is this message of a world of possibility that is energized and the horizons of which are opened before God's broken people. Here is God who shows up with an address, with glory, in the midst of all of our sickness and death and decay and sin and death. And our hearts are filled knowing that God is near to us, even in the midst of this, not far off, but loving us near. And if this is true, then surely anything is possible. If this God is present, if he is near to us even in our pain, then surely he is a God of possibility, a God who opens up a world of eternity in our very midst. And maybe even as you hear these things, you say, oh, gosh, I, I want that to be true for myself. I just, I, I wish that even today we could know this temple God, this God who provides this unique gift, these gifts to his people. And you know what? The Bible's answer is you can. Because Jesus, in showing himself as the true priest, as he shows up in the temple precincts, Uh, clearly demonstrating his authority over the temple, he declares himself to be the very fulfillment of these purposes of the temple. Jesus is the one who makes possible our intimacy with God. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, who gives us access into the throne room, the temple room of God. Jesus, who by his blood makes atonement, forgiveness for all of our sins. Jesus, who brings us before the very face of God that we might behold his beauty, that our souls might be filled with the beauty of God, who restores our hope that we might actually enter into this world of brokenness with courage, because we're encountered by the God of possibility. Oh, friends, don't you want your hearts to be strengthened in this way by this intimacy? Don't you want your souls to be enlarged and lifted up in this way by God's beauty? Don't you want your life to be propelled with strength by hope and the possibility of God? Do you hear this invitation? This is who the God of the Bible is. Do you want to know him? 
If perhaps you don't know him now, here is your invitation. And if you've been walking with him, do you know him in this way? This God of temple life, intimacy, and beauty and possibility. And then can you also see why Jesus became so upset when he found this temple so desecrated, its beauty so vandalized? You see, because it's only when we see the heights of its intended glory that we can appreciate the depths of its desecration, the extent to which that temple had been desecrated and God's people had descended. And so with nearly violent, holy resolve, Jesus overturns tables. He begins to make a change. He cleanses the temple right then and there. Let's look at the cleansing of the temple. If we observe the passage closely, there are about five different things that we see Jesus does. Things that he's with laser beam focused, kind of hones in and says, this is what needs to be challenged, even condemned. This is what needs to be healed. Five things. Number one, first, the temple had become a marketplace and a bank. We're told in verse 15 that Jesus began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. See, many of the worshipers in that day had come from distant countries, so they had to exchange their foreign currency to make an offering. And they had to purchase animals for the making of sacrifices in worship. Both of those things were common practice, and they were accepted. But Jesus seems to take serious issues, not only with the fact that this was now taking place on temple grounds, but also that this economic activity had so thoroughly overrun the worship of God. It had obscured the very purpose of the temple itself. My house shall be called a house of prayer, Jesus quoted from the prophets. This, there would have been stalls and stalls of animals surrounding this courtyard. According to one ancient historian, the worshipers at Passover, during which time this scene took place, required up to 250,000 lambs. If you could just imagine the sights and the sounds of the temple in that time, Jesus said, this is no good. Secondly, Jesus uh, puts his finger on the exploitation of people, the dishonest gain that was represented in their midst. He says, you have made it a den of robbers. These words come from Jeremiah 7, where the prophet condemns those who believe that their religious devotion to the temple will mask their hypocrisy, uh, will hide and cover their oppression of the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. God's house had become a den of robbers, a place where violent thieves scheme and hide. Thirdly, specifically, the temple merchants weren't just thieving, they were thieving the poor, exploiting them. Mark points out in verse 15 that Jesus overturned the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now You might know that according to Leviticus, a pigeon was the acceptable sacrifice for those who couldn't afford a lamb. So the materially poor, or those like lepers who lived on the margins of society. 
Jesus just couldn't handle the way in which these merchants were exploiting these dear worshipers. Fourth, Jesus also condemned the exclusion of foreigners from temple worship. Historians agree that all of this was taking place in what was known as the Court of the Gentiles, the outer large court that was created specifically for non-Jewish people where they could worship. It was this space that had been crowded out with money-changing tables and overpriced animals. In verse 17, Jesus repeatedly said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for, for all the nations. This is a quote from Isaiah 56, where the prophet speaks of salvation being extended beyond the borders and boundaries of Israel, extended to the foreigner, to the ethnic outsider. But now such people were crowded out, excluded from the gathering of God's people. And fifthly and lastly, after Jesus cleared out the temple, according to verse 18, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes were enraged. And they began to plot to kill Jesus. Why? We're told in verse 18, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. See, they weren't just jealous of Jesus's popularity. They were afraid of being replaced, of losing their place in Israel's religious system, social system. They were afraid of losing power. See, it wasn't the overturning of tables that they feared. It was the overturning of the social and religious order that gave them that power. That is what they feared. Commercial activity, robbery, exploitation of the poor, the exclusion of foreigners, the refusal to cede social power. These were the themes and the elements that stirred up Jesus' hearts that made him go around symbolically, prophetically, to demonstrate to them that this must not continue. He cleansed the temple, saying again and again, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Friends, I just want to apply this lesson in three ways, briefly, before we finish up. Three different applications. We can find many different ways to apply these things. I want to look at three. First, the commodification of worship. The commodification of worship. By this, I mean the way in which, even today, the Christian faith and our houses of worship become place, can become places where everyone and everything has a price and everything is measured according to its value. Here, I don't think Jesus' point is that churches should never sell books in the lobby after service or something of that sort. I think it's where Jesus is talking the way, about the way in which worship itself starts to become transactional. Uh, where we're just seeing worship as something that we punch into and punch out, get this over with, right? Where we lose the sense of God's house being a house of prayer, where we bring our hearts simply with simple devotion for communion with God, for restored intimacy with God based upon the blood of Jesus where we love one another not based upon their productivity in the world 
where we're valuing people not based upon how much they have and who they are in the eyes of the world, but rather that we're coming in humbly loving people simply according to who they are, worshiping as people that bring nothing but open hands by the grace of God. See, a a, a commodified community begins to conjure in our hearts a posture of consumerism, right? Where churchgoers view themselves as sort of like customers, and where ministry and church life becomes a product to be consumed. And the products to be consumed might be music, or it might be a sense of community. It might be an idea of spiritual maturity. But you see, you come in as a customer and you wait and you say, church, this is what you need to give to me. And the spirit of consumerism surely sets us up to have hearts of discontentment. Because the only kinds of questions that you're asking yourself are the kinds of questions that you find on a customer service card. And of course, there's never enough. Things are never good enough. And our hearts are never satisfied enough. Jesus calls us to something different, not a a culture of consumption, but rather in the church, a culture of contribution where we see ourselves not as customers, but as neighbors, indeed, as brothers and sisters, who don't just seek to gain, but rather to give. Just like Pastor Russ talked about last week, where we see ourselves primarily as servants, more than servants, as family members, where everyone is seen as being gifted with skills and experiences out of which we're to love and to share where we can give of the gifts and the glories that Christ has given to us, and where we learn to say again together, my house, God's house, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The second way that I'd like to apply these lessons is by considering the religious exploitation of the materially vulnerable. Now, that might sound like an intimidating lesson or theme to explore, And I want to be sure to say that I'm not suggesting that our churches or our people deliberately or consciously take advantage of the economically vulnerable. But I think the question we need to be asking ourselves is, are we at least aware of ways that we do life and ministry in a city like ours, including the startup of churches that may inadvertently, adversely affect the livelihood of the economically vulnerable. In other words, is our Christian presence in this city truly an added blessing or an added burden to our already struggling neighbors? The answer to that question is surely complex and layered. What I simply want to ask is, are we asking that question? Recently in the Washington Post magazine, there was a a wonderful profile of the Mount Pleasant neighborhood, which is part of the the mission field, the cluster of neighborhoods that we at Grace Meridian Hill are seeking to serve. And the profile was of the history of the neighborhood and how, as that article was claiming, that neighborhood had somehow stymied and warded off the pressures and forces 
of gentrification. I don't know about the full extent of the accuracy of that thesis, but it at least raised the question in my mind, to what degree has our congregation become unwitting agents of gentrification in our neighborhoods? Are we willing to grapple with ways that we might be taking advantage of economic opportunity as individual residents, as families, as churchgoers, that even sort of unintentionally make things harder for our lower income neighbors to make ends meet? Or maybe there's another line of questioning that we need to put before ourselves. How much are we, out of love and sacrifice and care, doing all that we can to make room for struggling neighbors, for those that are struggling emotionally, mentally, economically? In what ways are we making room for the lower economic parts of our neighborhood community that they too might find a home where they too might worship and find a place where they're not just that their needs are being met, but a place where they can be regarded as sister and as brother. Because my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, for all people. And thirdly and finally, I want to consider the exclusion and extraction of ethnic outsiders, which of course is the sordid and sorrowful history of the American church that we must grapple with, that we must acknowledge, and that we must even correct. And I'm talking not simply about the ways in which the church has perpetrated ecclesial theft by the exclusion of African-American neighbors, as my opening story illustrated, ways in which churches have did in the past eliminate black families from their midst, uh, sort of disenfranchising them even within the covenant community of spiritual blessings that were owed to all of God's people, assorted evil. But not only this, we must also acknowledge the ways in which the church across the life of American society has participated both as perpetrator and as accomplice in the multi-generational robbery of African Americans. We have made the church a den of robbers. The church has participated in the robbery of truth, the truth about the dignity of black image bearers. We have perpetrated lies about black criminality and inherent immorality. We have erased the ugly truth of this history, and we have participated in the willed forgetting of black identity and history, not least by romanticizing our American past and our church history's past as well. The church has participated in the, in the robbery of power from in black image bearers as well. Bodily power, political power, institutional power, beginning with the unspeakable robberies of bodily agency that was so terribly manifest in chattel slavery. 
And we have stolen wealth from black image bearers as well, extracting it from their labor and obstructing them in their attempts to accumulate wealth generation after generation. And the church has participated in these things lamentably, perhaps most consistently and unconscionably by our silence before it all. And the question before us is not only can we acknowledge and corporately repent of these things that happened in generations past, but do we have the moral courage also to ask ourselves today, is the Christian church still complicit in such robberies and thefts even to this day? Dear friends, can we acknowledge that sometimes it gets worse before it gets better if indeed we are seeking to cleanse God's house, if indeed we are seeking to have a restored reconciliation and righteousness in our midst. Sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. In the story of Second Presbyterian Church, the story of which I opened with, that church actually went through a major split after these kneelings. Those who insisted on maintaining the whites-only identity and practice of the church departed and started their own church, later called Independent Presbyterian Church. Are we willing to consider ways in which God might be calling us to participate in the cleansing of his house, his house over which God declares, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. Do we really want to know? Do we really want to see? Do we really want to be cleansed? Finally, I want to close with a word of hope. Don't forget that in this story, Jesus does act in this prophetic manner, overturning tables and disrupting the peace, as it were. But surely he does this in love. How do we know? Because this moment needs to be seen against the backdrop of why Jesus entered Jerusalem in the first place. And it was to die for sinners like me and like you. And to die for the restoration and beautification of broken churches like ours. Jesus did this not out of a will to discard that broken house, but rather to rebuild it by his blood and the power of his resurrection. You see, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he cleanses what he intends to keep and keep forever. And indeed, we labor to cleanse and to repair and to restore and to beautify that which belongs to Christ, his own body. But we labor towards that day when all things will be made new, where Jesus and his bride, his people, will be is, will be perfected, uh, will be restored to eternal intimacy with God, will be given an indelible beauty that will never be corrupted or taken away, where opened before us will be a new horizon of infinite possibility as we learn to labor and love and worship in harmony as one people, God's own people.
And until that day, we labor incrementally, bit by bit, seeking ways in which we can cleanse, repair, and live. Little steps that we take, even as Second Pres itself took steps several years ago, even releasing this statement of repentance, their commitment to overcome indifference, quote, to abolish status quo attitudes, to promote reconciliation, to increase educational and economic opportunity, to promote racial harmony, to demand equal application of law, and to pursue biblical justice. And even independent Presbyterian church, remember that offshoot community that was so committed to maintaining racial segregation, even in the Christian church, several years ago issuing this statement. We profess, acknowledge, and confess before God, before one another, and before the watching world that tolerance of forced or institutional segregation based on race and declarations of the inferiority of certain races, such as once were practiced and supported by our church and many other voices in the Presbyterian tradition, were wrong and cannot and will not be accepted within our church today or ever again. The Lord calls us to repent of the sin of prejudice, to turn from it, and to treat all persons with justice, mercy, and love. As a church, we will strive to be more intentional and proactive with ministry opportunities for the congregation to serve the city of Memphis as redemptive, God-driven agents seeking the peace and prosperity of all of Memphis. Jesus is doing his work. It is not complete. Even these churches themselves would acknowledge that. And yet we take little steps, incremental steps, little, we, we grab a hold of moments of cleansing, but filled with hope that Jesus is more committed to beautifying his bride, his people, than you and I ever will be. Amen and amen. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.